1928, the Peace Pact of Paris was signed in 1928. France and the United States were the official sponsors of this peace treaty. It was officially called the General Treaty for Renunciation of War as an Instrument of National Policy. Uh, it was signed by all the major word power, world powers at the time, uh, 54 different signatories. Uh, Barbados finally made it in 1971. Uh, the, this, this peace treaty was an international agreement in which all of these signatories promised not to use war to resolve disputes or conflicts of whatever nature or whatever origin they may be. I needn't go through the history since 1928 to prove the point that this peace pact didn't really last very long. In fact, a brief look at some statistics makes plain that peace on earth, this side of heaven, in worldly terms, is both an elusive and a fleeting ideal. Some historians have told us that since 3600 BC, there have been only 230, I'm sorry, 292 years of peace. During this period, since 3600 BC, there have been 14,351 wars in which 3.64 billion people have been killed. And the value of the property destroyed during that time would pay for a golden belt around the entire world that is 97 miles wide and 33 feet thick. That's a lot of people and property. And get this, <laughs> during this time, 8,000 peace treaties were signed. Friends, ever since Cain raised his hand against his brother Abel in Genesis 4, people have sought after peace. Unfortunately, as we've noted, this peace has always been and always will be an elusive and fleeting ideal. This is because that peace that people are seeking is worldly and earthly peace that is always on their own terms. Always on their own terms. I want peace with you. You want peace with me. We want peace with them. They want peace with us. In terms that are about horizontal relationship with one another so that we can live in the same world without killing one another. And that doesn't work. Now, believe me, this isn't at all a sermon about not having war. This is a sermon about having peace that actually lasts. That's what we have. That's the goal. That's what justification, meaning Jesus' perfect life lived for us when he died on the cross and transferred his sins to us, that that is what gives us peace. Nothing else can. Nothing else will. All of the effort that has ever been spent on it or will be spent on it will be an elusive and fleeting ideal that cannot bring what we're talking about today. Malcolm X in 1963 said, Be peaceful, be courteous, obey the law, respect everyone. And then he said, But if someone puts a hand on you, send them to the cemetery, because that's a good religion, he said. In other words, that's the world's peace. Be peaceful until someone invades your space. And then do whatever you have to do to keep your own peace. That's worldly peace. And you know exactly what this is like. We all do, both personally and by seeing it in the lives of others. We are taught from birth to seek your own peace. Find your own way. Maintain your own control. 
which when filtered through justification by faith, when filtered through scripture, sounds to Jesus probably like blah, blah, blah. Maintain your own control? How's that working for you, God says. Seek your own peace? How's that working for you, Jesus might say. In John 14, 27, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. And he says, I do not give as the world gives. I do not give as the world gives. The peace I give you is eternal, it is lasting, it is real, it's actual change. Everything else is moving the chess pieces around on the board. For a game that's already been won by Jesus, some people just don't know it. So let's look at that kind of peace today in Romans 5. It's the next step in this sermon series we've been talking about, about the role of righteousness in the gospel. And today we're going to note this idea that Christ's righteousness is what brings us peace in the first eight verses of Romans 5. So I want you to go ahead and turn there and follow along. We'll go ahead and read that whole passage, and we'll jump back at verse 1 and uh, talk about the three benefits in these first eight verses, the three benefits of peace with God. It says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And he says, More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And he says this, 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Go back to verse 1 where we see this first couple blanks in your study notes if you want to follow along today. Verse 1 establishes the promise of peace. The promise of peace. This is sort of the, the title for the three benefits that follow. It's sort of the indicative from which the three benefits follow. We'll look at this here. It says this, under the promise of peace. Therefore, verse 1, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now look at that first word, therefore. Remember, when you see the word therefore, you have to ask what it's there for. And so what it's there for is the purpose of reminding us, of reiterating to us, the things that Paul has already said in the first uh, four chapters up to this point. In the first four chapters, Paul has said that the righteousness of God, God's just, worthy perfection, his righteousness is what exposes our unrighteousness. And by faith in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, we are then declared righteous. We talked about the first couple of weeks. You can see that in the word justified that follows there. He says, therefore, since we have been justified, since we've been declared righteous, because we've been declared righteous by Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, we have peace. Because we've apprehended that by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the promise. Now there's a couple things we want to note here, a couple important things here. Uh, first is this. And there are a couple ways that Bibles talk about this phrase, we have peace peace. Uh, my version says we have peace, and most of your versions probably do. Uh, every once in a while, we'll come across one that says, let us have peace. 
And it may sound like an unimportant difference, but there's a pretty important difference between we have peace and let us have peace. There was probably a, a tiny little error uh, hundreds and hundreds of years ago when a scribe was copying the manuscripts. And so we have both manuscripts now. And the best one uh, is probably we have peace. It seems like a minor error because there's just a smidge of a difference in the word that you translate, let us have peace and we have peace. And the difference is this. We have peace is what we call an indicative. It's an indicative for the note takers. And it's not a subjunctive. It's different moods. We're going to do a little grammar lesson here. The indicative mood is a definite. It is something that is factual. The subjunctive mood is a maybe. It's a possible. And this is in the indicative mood. The indicative mood here says we have this peace. It doesn't say maybe we might have this peace. It's a huge difference. Which means that this isn't like a peace treaty between nations or the temporary peace between friends who are just going to make each other mad again when one of them does something to offend the other. This is a statement about the indicative reality of the relationship between the believer by faith and God. This kind of peace is like the word that some of you are probably familiar with in Hebrew, shalom. Shalom means lots of things, but it includes this idea that we are no longer an enemy of God. The relationship that was a hostile relationship, and we all know what hostile relationships are like, that enemy of us, uh, the, the us as enemy of God, is, is something that's fixed in that word shalom. It means we don't have that strife with him anymore. We have a good relationship with him. So that's the idea of this peace. Uh, for the note takers here, uh, Ephesians 2.14 is a cool verse uh, that parallels this. Jesus himself is our peace. Ephesians 2.14, Paul says that Jesus himself is our peace. And he broke down in his flesh the dividing wall between us and God. See also uh, Colossians 1.22 and 20. Uh, 21 and 22, Colossians 1, 21 and 2. So the peace we're talking about here is the opposite of the wrath that we talked about earlier on in Romans. This is not something that is a temporary peace between people. This is lasting, reconciliatory peace between God and humans. And we don't have a whole lot of time to illustrate this. We're going to go ahead and uh, give you a good definition for this peace that's in your study notes. And we'll put it up here. Peace is both, there are two things here, peace is both the objective reality of a relationship with God in which the hostility of sin has been removed and the subjective reality of the joyful experience of living in harmony with him. So it's, so it's both the truth of the matter that we are declared righteous by God that ushers forth in subjective feelings of being at peace with God. Don't do this silly thing about mind and heart, mind and heart. They're both a part of this. We know that he's told us that we're justified, and the feeling, the emotional subjective reality of that ushers forth in how we know that we are now at peace with him instead of enemies with him. So that is sort of the, the heading from which these next three benefits come. Let's go ahead and look at the first one, access to grace. This is verse 2. First little smidge part of verse 2 there, 2a. It says, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. 
the saying, through Christ, we have gained full access. This full access is sort of like a, a backstage pass into the grace of God. Peace with God means full-on access to grace. And like we've already said in the sermon series, this is not access that we gain by works. You can't do that. It doesn't work that way. This is access that has to be given to you. It has to be granted. That's why it's called grace. It's gifted. It's graced to us. This is access that is granted by faith in God's works. The idea behind this cool word access is the same idea as being introduced to the presence of the king in the throne room. That's some of the history behind this word access. It's something that you don't earn. You can't buy your way into it. It has to be given to you. So, so if you have access to the monarch, to the king, it's because you were given it. That's the idea behind this word access. You can't weasel your way in. You can't buy your way in. It has to be granted to us. You have to be invited. For the note takers, Matthew 27, 51. There's a cool verse that illustrates this. Matthew 27, 51. At the time of the crucifixion, as uh, you may know, the temple veil was torn in two, which means that access to God was now granted to all. That holy of holies before was something that just the great high priest, just the high priest could go into one time a year. One time a year. And he did that on behalf of everybody else. This is access that means that the temple veil, which some believe was as many as three inches thick, was torn in two from top to bottom, and that's how we have access to grace. John 10, 9, Jesus talks about this access, that he is the door. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. He also calls himself the way. In Ephesians 3.12, it says that in Christ, not in us, in Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence, which is a cool phrase for us to hold on to. We have boldness. We have access with confidence. That's a different kind of feeling, isn't it, than we often have about the us and God relationship, isn't it? We fight with that a lot, don't we? I know that I do. We have access to God's presence. Now note that it says, one more thing before we move on, it says we have access into his grace in which we stand. You would think that it would mean that we have access to God, which we do, but it's a special kind of relationship with God. It's grace-based relationship with God. He says the access is into this grace in which we stand. And the access of grace in which we stand uses a word for stand there that is like a permanent fixture. The Greek term there for the stand is, is something that establishes a permanent fixture. It's like putting up pillars underneath a building to make sure that it's strong and to make sure that it's permanent. So the access that we receive, Paul is saying here, is like a totally new way. It's a totally new way of living with God. Instead of being his enemy, we are now his friend because we live out of this new grace-based relationship in which we stand. So let that, let that sink in for a second here. Because it's a truth that we have to learn to love because it's a precious truth 
for how we live day to day. We now have a grace-based relationship with the perfect, infinite, majestic, holy God of the universe who could have justifiably crushed us all like a bug with a word. That's a different way of living. And that way of living, that way of living is something that we have to learn to live out of vertically so the world knows that we're living out of it horizontally. Which is the next point. Viewing the present in light of the future. Viewing the present in light of the future. Because we have access to grace in this new kind of relationship with God, we needn't manipulate one another. We don't have to anymore. Because all those ways, all those works that we would use for horizontally making sure that we have peace with one another that didn't last no longer has to be that way. It means it's a grace-based relationship. And he makes that point by, by saying that we can view the present in light of the future in the next few verses here. This is the next benefit for it. You see, so often we, we view our future based on our past. That's how we go through life. We judge people based on what we know about their past. We put them into this little box about what we know about them, and that's who they're going to be forever. We do it with ourselves. This is what I am. This is who I came. This is where I came from. Who I'm always going to be. The best predictor of future behavior is past behavior, and that's somewhat true. But, but, we must learn to live in the present in light of the future. This is a cool truth. Look at this. It says, We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Circle that word rejoice there. It's a pretty cool word. It's the same word translated boast. Uh, there are a couple versions that use the word boast, uh, but most of them say something like rejoice. Uh, if you're taking notes here, I want to read a little definition for this word rejoice here. Rejoice or boast means to express an unusually high degree of confidence in someone or something being exceptionally noteworthy. To boast means to express an unusually high degree of confidence in someone or something being exceptionally noteworthy. We're really good. We're really good at not having a high degree of confidence in one another, huh? Because you know how I sin against you, and I know how you sin against me. And in relationships, we're pretty clear that sin still exists in the world and in people's hearts. And so we, we impose that kind of lack of confidence in our relationship with God. We're going from the ground up. And Paul is saying, don't do that. It's from the top down. Our lives are lived top down. What God says about the riches we have in Christ is the way that we operate from there we live out this way. And we don't have to. We don't have to manipulate one another. Because we can boast in God. Not in us. We can boast in the work God's done for us 
and not in our supposed work that got us to where we are. Friends, we've all been raised from the grave. All of us have been raised from the grave, some of us in our families, some of us by the world, some of us in our workplaces, to be the kinds of people who pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and need no one else, (laughs) not even God, to be sufficient for us. And so what we do is we impose that in our relationship with God. And we misunderstand the extent to which we have riches in him. This is what Chuck Swindoll says about this. He says, whereas some live, whereas some live by an uneasy expectation that their good deeds will be good enough for heaven. Isn't that where a lot of us live? Whereas some live by an uneasy expectation that their good deeds will be good enough for heaven. Those who take up residence in the land of grace can live with complete confidence. That's the new way of grace-based living with God. Those who take up residence in the land of grace can live with complete confidence. Ironically, he says, the boasting of believers is inherently humble because they do not have any confidence in their own goodness. That's a lesson for a lot of us. Take that confidence in your goodness and flush it down the toilet. Because that's the confidence in your goodness that sends people to hell on a road that's paved with good intentions, friends. Take your own confidence and put it where it needs to go. Because I don't have to tell you from your own life, you can tell you, you will fail every time. We all do. We all do. Confidence in what? Your ability to make it? To have enough security? Your confidence in what? I mean, I think God looks down at us and all of our efforts to make ourselves worthy, and he goes, how's that working for you? Paul says, boast in God's good. Because when you boast in God's goodness, a whole slew of things follow. And that's what happens in the next few verses here. Because what follows is hope. This isn't hope like, I hope I get a bicycle for Christmas. This isn't, I hope it doesn't rain when we go to the beach next week. This is hope that is an assured expectation. This is hope that is an assured expectation. And that's the first thing that follows from having the ground of boasting being in God and not us. It's like having a ticket and going to a concert. You don't hope in vain that you'll go. You've got the ticket. It's paid for. You have an expectation that you're going to go to it. That's hope. It's like watching the recording of a, an intense sports game that, that has the nail-biter ending, but you already know the final score. That's assurance that is in view here in Romans 5. And, and, and friends, because... Because the most fundamental battle has already been won, the score of this game is justified sinner infinity with accusations of Satan or anybody else this. That's the truth of the riches we have in glory that is top-down Christian living. We've, We've got to get that. We've got to. And that's hope that's not in us, but in God. And that's hope that has a product that we can live now based on then. 
says this, verse 3. Not only that, not only the hope, but we rejoice in our sufferings. We can rejoice in our sufferings. Most people think uh, that trouble is to be avoided and to be endured like a, a stoic who pretends that trouble doesn't really matter, that, that trouble's a farce. But Paul says to the contrary, that trouble is to be faced. Trouble is to be faced as proof of knowing the peace that passes understanding, Philippians 4, 7. The Christian who is justified by God's righteousness in Christ does not avoid hard things, but rather is equipped to face them for real. We know because we see people all the time pressed into my life. They're not equipped. They're not able. They can't meet the challenges of those tribulations because their hope's in them instead of in God. Paul says, we can rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance. There's a step-by-step -step process of sanctification he goes through a little bit here. This idea of endurance here is perseverance. Charles Spurgeon says that it was by perseverance that the snail reached the ark. It's that kind of step-by-step, little-by-little, faithful, day-in and day-out kind of endurance that produces that produces character, we'll look at in a second. John Wesley, I came across this this week. John Wesley uh, preached tens of thousands of sermons all over the world, uh, frankly. Uh, listen to a few weeks from his diary. This is a man who knew perseverance. It says, Sunday, a.m., May 5th, preached in St. Anne's, was asked not to come back anymore. <laughs> Sunday, p.m., May 5th, preached in St. John's. Deacon said, get out and stay out. Sunday a.m. May 12th, preached in St. Jude's, can't go back there either. Sunday a.m. May 19th, preached in St. Somebody Else's. Deacons called special meeting and said I couldn't return. Sunday p.m. May 19th, preached on street, kicked off street. Sunday a.m. May 26th, preached in Meadow, chased out of Meadow as bull was turned loose during service. <laughs> Sunday a.m. June 2, preached out at the edge of town, kicked off the highway. And then finally this, Sunday p.m. June 2, a month later. Afternoon, preached in a pasture. 10,000 people came out to hear me. <laughs> Do you think it was worth you think it was worth all that for him? Do you think that effort was worth it? All that failure for the final time? But you know what? You can endure that. You can endure that when you come to riches of Christ. That kind of endurance, it's that kind of perseverance through suffering that produces, verse 4, character. That's what produces the character of Jesus that will be formed in us. This is a personal character that is produced by testing. And it's that kind of testing and character that will produce the hope that Paul talks about. It's not going to happen quickly. It's not going to happen easily. In fact, it's going to happen hard. That's what redemption does. Is it takes sin and evil, the attempts of Satan, and it turns it around and it uses it for the glory of God. That's cool stuff, to which we'll get back in Revelation. So, he says, we can rejoice in our suffering because suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Produces hope. This hope is not just because we have access to grace. It's that, but it's because we can live 
in the present out of that grace-based relationship with God, which means that we can meet life with confidence today because we know what will happen tomorrow. Viewing present trials in light of a forward-looking hope for glory. It means that we needn't worry about our present trials. 2 Corinthians 4.17 calls them our light and momentary afflictions. What seems like a terrible situation that you cannot possibly get past today will be something later on down the road which will look and feel like a light and momentary affliction if you have God with you and you have access to Him by grace. So the simple question for this point is, friend, is that a description of you? Are you learning to increasingly bear with grace through the suffering that produces perseverance, character, and hope? Or are you fly by night, squeezed out? Because this is the kind of thing that separates the men from the boys when it comes to following Jesus. Are you real or are you not? If you're real, then you experience the unconditional love of God. That's the last point. Experiencing the unconditional love of God. Finally here, look at verse 5, where Paul begins to describe this experience. He says, hope does not put us to shame. Some versions say this, hope does not disappoint. It's a good way to say it. Paul is saying that, that real Christian hope, and not, not human hope, real Christian hope, that's placed in, in, in the trust that is placed in Christ, that kind of Christian hope never puts those who have it to shame. You may at times feel like, you know, outside of this context, out in the world, at your job, at school, wherever, you may feel like you feel silly feel silly for hoping in this uh, Jesus on the cross from 2,000 years ago because my friend or my teacher or my boss uh, thinks that I'm crazy. <laughs> but Paul is saying, don't worry. This is hope in a God who loves to give himself to you. This is hope in a God who loves to give himself to us. We know that from the next phrase. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It is God's unconditional love that finds no basis in our goodness, but only in His goodness that is given to us through the Holy Spirit. So verse 6 and the following sort of corroborate, they support this truth about the unconditional love of God. Keep reading here, verse 6. It says, For while we were still weak, meaning we were morally weak to justify ourselves, we were powerless to be able to do anything about it, which is the truth of the matter, not what we think about it. The truth of the matter is that we were powerless. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The righteous for the unrighteous, as 1 Peter 3.18 says it. The revolutionary part of the gospel, friends, is that Christ dies for ungodly people. Call yourself what you want. God calls you ungodly without you. The revolutionary part of the gospel is that the death of Christ 
was for ungodly people who didn't deserve one iota of his time. That, that is unconditional love. Paul continues, verse 7. He's continuing to make this point about unconditional love. He says, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. Not often, but occasionally somebody may trade their life for somebody else's. But, Paul says, this is a different category entirely. Verse 8. He says, but God shows his love for us. Interesting that shows is in the present tense. In other words, God is still showing his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In basic terms, friends, the gospel of God's unconditional love is that at the very moment when we were strapped to the executioner's block, guilty and condemned to die, Christ steps forward and takes our place even though we were his enemy. That's unconditional love. And that's what provides the peace that passes all understanding. The kind of peace that's provided by Christ's own righteousness. No longer need we look up with our fists in the air because we were an enemy. We can look up in love at the God who gave himself for us. Friends, that's peace. Everything else offered to us is not. Father,